Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. And we're continuing, as Aaron just read God's word to us out of Psalm 32, our series in the Psalms for the summer, praying that God would give rest to our souls. And, and so I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump into Psalm 32. So pray with me. Lord God, we thank you. You speak to us. We thank you that you give uh, those who you have said in your word are people after your own heart, like David, the author of the psalm, who was a big sinner, a massive failure, and yet you say he's a man after your heart. So Lord, would you, would you meet us where we are this morning in, in our guilt and in our sin and our struggle, and would you bring freedom and would you Remind us yet again, renew us yet again in your grace and love that abounds to us. Lord Jesus, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, welcome. I'm Daniel. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to start by telling you a, a story about a little boy named Tommy who was visiting his grandparents. And Tommy was given his first ever slingshot. And he practiced in the woods at his grandparents' house, and uh, he could never hit his target. Tommy could never hit the target. So he came back to his grandparents' backyard, and he saw his grandmother's pet duck. And, uh, and on impulse, Tommy took his slingshot with a rock, and he took aim, and he squarely hit the duck, and the duck dropped dead. He panicked, so he tried to hide the dead duck in a, in a wood pile, only to look up and see his sister Sally watching him. Sally had seen it all, but she said nothing. So after lunch that day, the grandmother said, Sally, let's wash, let's wash the dishes. But Sally said, Tommy told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today, didn't you, Tommy? And then she whispered to Tommy, remember the duck. So Tommy did the dishes. And later, granddad asked if the children wanted to go fishing. But grandmother said, I'm sorry, but I, I need Sally to help me make dinner. And Sally smiled and said, that's taken care of. Tommy wants to do it. Again, whispering, remember the duck. So Tommy stayed while Sally went fishing, and after several days of doing his chores and his sister's chores, he couldn't stand it any longer, and he confessed to his grandmother that he had killed her duck. And grand grandmother responded, I know, Tommy. She gave him a big hug, and she said, I was standing at the window, and I saw the whole thing. I forgive you because I love you. I was just wondering how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. This morning, I want to talk about guilt and confession. And guilt can be enslaving. Guilt can be the companion who travels along life with you, whispering, remember the duck. Storyteller Garrison Keillor said, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. All of us know the gift of feeling enslaved by guilt, the, guilt, the gift of guilt that is condemnation and how it can continue to haunt us laying in bed at night with the burden of what you've thought, said, done, or left undone that you know was wrong. Imagine being the ruler of a great kingdom. And one night you go out on your balcony and you see a very attractive person who is married to one of your good friends and, and you're drawn in by the beauty. And so you have an affair with that person. But the guilt of having slept with a good friend's spouse, it won't leave you alone. So you decide to put your, your, your good friend on the front lines of a battle so that they'll be killed 
so you can finally have their spouse for yourself, and now you've committed adultery and murder. The guilt is haunting. It's heavy. That's King David, the author of this psalm. The king of Israel looks out on his balcony, and he sees beautiful Bathsheba, and he commits adultery. And then he has his friend, her husband, Uriah, killed. Now, you may not have killed someone, or you may have. But you've been angry at someone. You've gossiped and you slandered a person. You've critiqued a person in a way that diminishes their dignity and gives you a sense of self-righteousness. You may not have committed adultery, or you may have. But you've looked at another person for too long and you've objectified them. You've, you've wondered what it might, might be like to, to be married to that person rather than your spouse. Or, or maybe you've scanned the internet for images or videos. Now some of you are thinking right now, guilt. This is the very reason I don't want anything to do with Christianity. Right? The, the church manufactures guilt. The church and Christianity loves to serve big, heaping spoonfuls of guilt on people. So maybe you're tired of guilt. You want to rid yourself of this negative feeling, and the church and Christianity sure don't feel like the solution to your guilt, but more so the problem. Wherever you are this morning in relationship to trying to rid yourself of guilt and its enslavement, the reality is that when we lay in bed at night, and we think about our day, or we think about our week, or our month, or the year, or the past few years, it's really hard to shake the sense of condemnation and the burden of guilt. I was reading early this morning a New York Times article, uh, and the article was about radio show, uh, show host Howard Stern, and how he has changed in his interviewing over the last 10 years, uh, becoming more intimate, more humane, more personal as he interviews people. And, uh, and if you know Howard Stern, he can be quite pr uh, profane uh, and vulgar. But this article quotes an interview he did with actor Bill Murray in 2014. If you know Bill Murray uh, from many movies. But listen to Bill Murray share on the Howard Stern show. Howard Stern asked him, is there something you question in your own life? Like, why haven't I found that great love of my life? And Murray audibly exhales, lets a pensive moment of silence pass. And then he says, well, I think about that. I do think about that. That, I'm, you know, I, I'm not sure what, my, what I'm getting done here, he said. Sounding like a man questioning his ultimate purpose. What has stopped you from getting in touch with you? Asked Robin Quivers, Stern's longtime co-host. Murray responded, well, what stops us from looking at ourselves and seeing ourselves is that we're kind of ugly. If we really, if we look really hard, we're not who we think we are. We're not, a, we're not as wonderful as we think we are. What Murray is saying is when we're all alone and we look inward, we can't help but remember the duck. We remember the lust and the pride and the anger and the greed and the dishonesty. We're not as wonderful as we think we are. Psalm 32 is not about wallowing in guilt. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about making you feel burdened by guilt. Jesus and Psalm 32 are about us owning and confessing our deep guilt so that we can experience Christ's love, grace, and joy. Christ came so that the burden of sin can roll away. True confession, biblical confession that we see in Psalm 32, it's liberating. It brings freedom. It is the door that opens, and opens us up to hear God say, I forgive you, 
because I love you. John Newton, who's the, the writer of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, said, I'm a great sinner. I need a great Savior. See, the more we can see our sin, then the more we can see how great Jesus is. That's the Christian life. That's growing in the Christian life, is understanding how deep our sin runs and growing in our understanding of just how high the love of Christ is. We own our guilt because of our sin, and then we confess our sin, and we experience a wonderful, merciful Savior. This is why St. Augustine of Africa had this psalm, Psalm 32, inscribed and hung by his bed. It was his favorite psalm. Augustine wanted to end his day and begin his day with Psalm 32, a psalm of confession, to confess and then usher him into the presence of a loving and gracious and merciful God. So I want us to look this morning at the gift of confession from verses 1 through 5, the posture of confession, verses 6 to 7, and then the fruit of confession, verses 8 to 11. So let's look first at the gift of of confession, verses 1 to 5. Look at verse 1 to 2. King David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. I've said this before, but blessed means whole. Blessed means deeply happy. Blessed is not the person who has it together. Blessed is not the person whose life is perfect. Blessed is not the person who feels no guilt and does whatever they deem best. Happy, whole, blessed is the person who is guilty of sin, confesses their sin, and then is forgiven in their sin. Ownership of guilt and confession to a Savior who forgives is necessary for a blessed life. You see, the one requirement to be whole and to be happy is a confession of being a massive failure. So let me just encourage all of us here this morning. There are a lot of candidates for the blessed life gathered here this morning. Welcome. Glad we're together. Then verses 3 to 4 show us what a curse not confessing is. Look at verses 3 to 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You know, it took King David almost one year, and then finally being confronted by his good friend, the prophet Nathan, before he finally confessed of his sins of adultery and murder. For one year, verses 3 to 4 was David's reality. David is saying, unconfessed sin will destroy you spiritually and physically body and soul connected. Unconfessed sin will eat away at you. It will be a life of groaning and moaning, a life of where your strength will be sapped away. You'll be lethargic, no energy, possibly depressed. Day and night, God's hand is heavy upon those who do not confess their sin. Preacher Charles Spurgeon said, better a world on the shoulder like Atlas than God's hand upon your heart like David." But with genuine confession, there's forgiveness. There's the covering of sin. There's the no counting of sin. These are the three different ways that that David describes what God does with true confession. God removes it, God covers it, and God doesn't count it against us. How in the world can that be? Because the Lord Jesus took our sin upon himself. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the reversal of the gospel, right? God removes our sin because Christ took it upon Himself and then we gain His righteousness. Christ shed His blood to cover our sin. Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God, covered by the blood. Like the Israelites who on their doorpost at Passover covered their doorpost with blood so that God's wrath would pass over those who trust in Jesus had the shed blood of Christ covering them so that God's wrath passes over us in our sin. God sees Jesus when he looks at those with faith and he passes over because Christ bore our judgment. And God doesn't count our sin against us. Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteous. Verse 5 of Romans 4, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, Jesus, who justified the ungodly, his faith is counted righteous. And then in Romans 4, Paul quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 to 2. Righteousness is granted or imputed to the one who believes. That's a legal terminology. A declaration in the heavenly courtroom is declared by faith in Christ. In the ledger account of life, right, that we like to keep, in the ledger account of life, Christ takes guilt and sin and we receive his perfect righteousness. It's counted, declared, imputed to us. All this done solely by faith alone and Christ alone. This is the gift of confession. Let me lead to the next point, which is the posture of confession. And to understand the fullness of the gift of confession, there must be personal contrition, deep, deep ownership of how great our personal corruption really is. Now herein lies a major problem that the church can often have. Perhaps some of you, but I know many on the outside of the church, feels like the church enjoys serving heaping spoonfuls of guilt on other people. Really good at judging other people's sins, the sins of those, and, and I would agree. We are often way better at pointing out the speck in other people's eyes rather than owning the log in our own eye. And David says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin. Did not cover my iniquity. I confess my transgressions. David is deeply broken over his own sin. And Psalm 51 shows us that he was deeply grieved because his sin broke the very heart of God. Let me say that to enjoy the gift of confession, we must understand there is a huge difference between remorse for sin and repentance over sin. It's a difference. There's a difference. I, I heard an old, older pastor, a veteran pastor, like in his 60s, very young, uh, young pastor, uh, and, uh, and he described the difference between remorse and repentance and how sometimes the church and pastors, young pastors, uh, even the church and Christians in it can buy remorse as true repentance. He said it took him a while to pick up on the difference as, as a pastor. And then he shared about a couple in his church who'd been married for 15 years. And the woman finally had enough of, of being abandoned and abused in so many ways, and she said, I'm going to divorce you. And the husband all of a sudden begins to show up at church every week. He's engaged at church. He's engaged with the children 
all of a sudden. <laughs> he's doing dishes and he's vacuuming. I mean, he, he looks like he's a changed man. And he said early in ministry uh, to him and to the untrained eye, it would seem like the wife dropped the hammer, the husband has changed, he's transformed, he's repented. But this wife carries through with the divorce because it had been way too long for her to suffer. All of a sudden, the husband disappears from the church. No longer coming around, he starts crying out, there's no biblical grounds for divorce. So the husband actually showed change, not because of repentance, because he was remorseful over the consequences of his sin. What he was after was not forgiveness, he just didn't want the divorce. And the pastor told him, instead of saying you have no biblical grounds for divorce, you know what true repentance and confession would be like? It would, it would be like you saying, I understand. I understand why you want to divorce me. I understand why you, you, you want separation. I don't know how you've put up with me for this long. I'm so sorry that I've killed and crushed your spirit. See, true confession doesn't qualify itself. There is no, yes, I did this, but the reason was because I was tired or I was stressed out. Yes, I'm guilty, but you did this or he or she did that. True confession is deep brokenness over your sin. It's the cry of, I'm guilty. It's me. It's me. If there is a but, I'm not sure it's real confession. There must be an honesty about how deep our sin runs. No pointing of fingers, no blame shifting. We watch a, a TV show called Suits in our house, and one of the, the main plots of this TV show is that Mike Ross, who, who works for Harvey Specter and his law firm, didn't actually go to law school. Uh, Mike Ross didn't take the bar exam. He's just wicked smart, brilliant smart, practicing law as a fraud. He's a fraud. In season five, which we just finished last night, Mike finally begins to feel some remorse for his fraud because it's beginning to affect people that he loves. So Mike decides to go back to his childhood Catholic priest. He walks in, he tells the priest that he wants to confess. And what the priest perceives Mike doing is Mike coming to confess in order for the priest to tell him, you're a good man, Mike. And there are actually some good reasons that you decided to commit fraud. But the priest won't do it. And Mike won't own his personal guilt. And he gets angry at the priest. And the priest keeps pushing. And finally, Mike confesses, finally, I'm, gu I'm guilty. And I'm scared of what I've done. To raw honesty is key. It's key to confession. But here's the point. To be honest, you have to trust the person you're confessing to. You have to have a sense of security in the person you're confessing to. Which is why David says in verse 7, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. Last week, Rachel and I gave Henry a bath right before bedtime. And we went in our backyard and, and Henry went immediately to the corner of our yard and he started playing in the dirt. Picking up handfuls of dirt, wiping them on his face. And he thought it was hilarious. And my immediate response as his dad was like, Henry, no! Don't do that, buddy. We just gave you a bath. Don't do that. And, and Rachel responded by saying, oh, he's okay. Let him get dirty and play. We can wash him again. And then we both laughed at, at Henry just wiping his face with dirt. And I was convicted 
by my ever-watching eye to do right and not do wrong that my family can often feel. And then I had Rachel preach the gospel to me by reminding me how God looks at us. He delights in us, dirt and all, messiness and all, and he tells us, it's okay. I love you, and I'll wash you over and over and over. And I don't know about you, but give me Rachel for a parent any day, right? Because <laughs> in that, I feel safe and I feel secure. I'd be willing to share my struggles because I'm not fearing the response or I'm not fearing the ever-watching eye. If we fear how someone will respond to our dirt and our confession and our mistakes, we will not feel safe to confess. But if we feel safe and secure and loved unconditionally, we'll confess. Amen. So if you have a high view, or a, a, not a high view, but a, a view of God, that he's watching over you and that he's quick to yell at you, to get angry when you get dirty and, you, and when you sin, that he's going to make you pay, that somehow God takes joy in you bearing the consequences of your sin, you're never going to come to God with honest confession. And we've all been in that place of fear before, haven't we? Fearing what our parents might think if they really know what we did. Fearing how our spouse might respond if we really share. Fearing how a friend might respond if they really no. And we've all had people respond in anger or rage or major disappointment in us. But God does not respond this way, brothers and sisters. God is safe. He is a hiding place. He is quick to forgive and he's slow to anger. If you're living with unconfessed sin and guilt is eating away at you, trust Jesus. He is safe. And he will wash you over and over and over, delighting in you. Amen. In and through Christ, the Father loves us unconditionally. That's what John tells us in 1 John, the perfect love casts out fear. We look to Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the love of the Father seen in the gift of the Son. We need not fear. He's our hiding place. The last thing I want us to see is the fruit of confession. Look at verses 10 to 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's security. Deep security with gladness, rejoicing, and joy. These are the fruits of confession. An old movie that I love, Shawshank Redemption. The librarian Brooks, many of you have seen this movie, been in Shawshank, the prison, for 50 years, and he's finally set free. After he'd been living on the outside for a few weeks, Brooks commits suicide because he just doesn't know how to, how to live in freedom. He'd become institutionalized and accustomed to the prison. And I'm afraid that way too many of us have become accustomed to guilt and condemnation. And you know where it's shown? It's shown in how much we are affected by criticism, how much we fear not being and doing enough, and how much we long for the approval of others. Because there is complete freedom in Christ to confess our sin, own our sin, and hear the pardoning voice of God declare us forgiven and loved. If we are convicted and grieved by how we've sinned against God, and we know how much He loves us, it will free us to hear his voice declare us his children. 
And that will produce a freedom, catch this, that will produce a freedom in us to care less about the voices of other people and what they might say about us. In the gospel of Jesus, there is a healthiness that says, I don't care what you think or what you might say about me. And I long for that. I pray for that, for me and for you. See, as we come before a God who has given us his only son to forgive and cover and not count sin against us, we're set free to live a life secure in his steadfast love, filled with joy. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Church, you don't need to live in fear of doing wrong. You don't need to live in worry that you need to do more and be more. We don't need to remember the duck. We don't need to worry about the ledger. Christ has dealt with our sin, forgiven, covered, no longer counted against us. Isn't that freeing? What joy there is. The burden of sin rolls away. I pray for our church. I pray a number of things for our church. I pray against self-righteousness and pride that could ever bubble up because we think we're doing church right. I pray against the guilt and shame that I know many of us have the need to be and do more. I pray for freedom, and I pray for joy. I pray for us to be so gripped to the depth of our sins so we can be so secure in the heights of God's love. And this freedom that comes in Christ will actually make us humble and contrite because we own our sin and we confess it and we receive God's grace. And that humility and brokenness over our sin will make us attractive to the watching world. And this freedom that's found in Christ will actually allow us to step out in faith on this mission that God's called us to be a part of and not worry if we're doing it right or wrong, but we trust God that he's called us to move, believing he loves us. Brothers and sisters, verse 9, I have to say this because it's in the Psalms. It says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle. King David was acting like an animal. Animal instinct in his adultery and in his murder. He was stubborn and unrepentant for over a year. And if we stay stubborn and we don't confess, we might feel God's goodness, which can hurt, bit and bridle, steal in our mouth to steer us back to himself. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, we would not need to be treated like mules if there were not so much jackass in us. We can boast. We can boast in our weakness. We don't need to delay our confession. There is freedom in confession. Thanks be to God that His grace forgives and covers all our sin. So the blessed life is actually found in owning up to being a massive failure. And then turning to Jesus and trusting Him And hearing God say, forgiven, covered, not counting it against you. This psalm really is a psalm to go to sleep to at night and wake up to the next morning like Augustine. May we know the liberating power of God's love and grace that comes in honest confession. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would set us free. (laughs) Oh, God, I think sometimes... uh, Lord, there are, there are many of us that are, are better at, at confession and wallowing in our guilt than we are at 
seeing the height of your love. And so I pray that you would, would awe and woo us with your love. And there are some of us in here that, Lord Jesus, don't want to feel guilty. We don't like that feeling. But, Lord Jesus, would you take us deep there to, to own our corruption so that we can then fully understand how deep you really love us. Set us free, make us joyful, give us security that comes in knowing that you delight in us. Messiness, failures, brokenness and all, you delight in us because of what we're about to celebrate at this table, because of what the Lord Jesus has done on our behalf. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.